Willa stared outside the train window, watching the landscape, thick and green, until suddenly it gave way to silver, amber, and chartreuse. They were passing through a sunfield solar farm. The artificial trees stretched upward, soaking in photovoltaic energy that would power nearly everything on the southeastern grid. Don't bother trying to improve Mother Nature's design. That was Grandma Marnie's philosophy. In rethinking the solar panel as a tree, she had not only made them more effective, but gentler on the planet. In theory, they could be planted anywhere, without having to raise an acre of woodland. Of course, in reality, it was more economical to group them in single, high-sun locations. But even then, Grandma Marnie had envisioned them as a forest, an ecosystem. Sunlight was converted to power in the leaves, transformed inside its trunk, transmitted through a complex root system. There were even spaces carved into the bodies for wildlife to nest. It was a Cherokee way of thinking, she said, and that Native people had always been makers and inventors. She said that Willow would be that way too. How can we not only discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and like to me, pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Total Liberation Podcast. I'm your host, Mexi, and today we are reclaiming our radical imagination with Tori Stevens, the founder of Imagine 2200, Climate Fiction for Future Ancestors. Imagine 2200 is a climate fiction initiative at Grist Magazine, which showcases stories from very diverse authors from around the globe that are all in the visionary fiction genre. So Afrofuturism, indigenous futurism, solar punk, etc., providing inspiration on how we might get to a sustainable, reciprocal, and just world. As you know, Maureen and I have long been into visionary fiction and believe strongly in the power of reclaiming our radical creativity in order to meet the challenges of this particular historical moment. Adrian Marie Brown, who inspired our journeys into Afrofuturism, solar punk, and visionary fiction, was actually one of the judges on the panel for Imagine 2200, which is rad as hell. Uh, if you'll remember, we actually spent a whole year starting off each show with hopeful headlines for the future, headlines that you might see if we actually succeeded in revolutionizing society. And Imagine 2200 and stories in the genre of visionary fiction really take that concept to the next level. Uh, Tori and I talk about this in the podcast. I think we absolutely cannot underestimate the political import of this. So I've linked to the Imagine 2200 featured stories in the show notes and highly recommend everyone check them out. They are also available as short audiobooks via the website. Uh, and, you know, I love a good audiobook. <laughs> But before we dive in, I have a few things I want to mention. First is a tremendous thank you to our new patrons, Nathan, Lisa, and Talar. 
Your support is absolutely invaluable. If anyone would like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash total liberation, or you can give us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, totalliberationpodcast.com. Shares, ratings, and reviews are also extremely important and incredible ways to support the show. Uh, We definitely appreciate everyone who takes the time to do that. Secondly, as listeners will know, I am currently pregnant, 38 weeks pregnant. I'm due on December 31st. So depending on how things go, there may be an interruption of regular podcasts in the new year. If you are a patron, never fear, the Patreon will be paused, so you won't be charged, but I may still release some A Little to the Left episodes as podcasts as we have some really great topics coming up and some actually I think that we've already done that you might be interested in, but uh, bear with me, (laughs) this will be my first child. So I'll be navigating a lot of firsts, and I definitely will be making a podcast about the business of birth and also, you know, radical parenting as the contradictions of capital and climate change intensify. So stay tuned for those episodes. Uh, But we'll see. So, (laughs) So yes, thank you for your patience in the next couple of months. Lastly, I wanted to shout out a very cool project by friends of the show Rachel Rosen and Zila Novikov, illustrated by Martin Knorr, called The Sad Bastard Cookbook, (laughs) and I'll read the synopsis here. Life is hard. Some days are at the absolute limit of what we can manage. Some days are worse than that. Eating, picking a meal, making it, putting it into your face hole can feel like an insurmountable challenge. We wrote this cookbook to share our coping strategies. It has recipes to make when you've worked a 16-hour day, when you can't stop crying and you don't know why, when you accidentally woke up an eldritch abomination at the bottom of the ocean. But most of all, this cookbook exists to help sad bastards like us feel a little less alone at mealtimes. The Sad Bastard Cookbook is funny, realistic, and kind. It's vegetarian, vegan, it's a community-built project, and the ebook is free on the Night Beats website. It's hard to survive late capitalism, and we want to help. (laughs) So I love that. As a Spoonie myself who is very overworked, I will often leave meal prep until the very last minute and be absolutely hangry and scrambling for whatever I can make really quickly and easily. So I appreciate the whole vibe of this cookbook. As I mentioned, the ebook is free to download, so I will link to that below. And if you wanted a paper copy, you can order one online. So, getting back into our topic for today, here is a bit of background about our guest, Tori Stevens. Tori is a mixed Black and Cape Verdean American who grew up in an idyllic working-class community in East Cambridge near the poverty level. However, due to domestic abuse and the 80s crack epidemic, his single mom left their community and neighborhood for an affluent and very white suburb outside of Boston. This dichotomy challenged and changed his identity. Before making his way over to Grist, Torrey was a champion of telling stories that center marginalized individuals, communities, and organizations in the health advocacy space for more than a decade. He attributes his love of stories to 90s hip-hop, comic books, and cultural anthropology. He is a resource generator and community builder for social justice issues, people, and movements. Torrey worked in individual giving campaigns and major donor relationship management for 13 years before joining FIX, Grist's Solutions Lab, as their network weaver and climate fiction creative manager. Torrey has used storytelling in the past to raise awareness around HIV-AIDS, to defend Medicaid and Medicare, and to protect the Affordable Care Act. 
Now, as the creative manager for Imagine 2200, Fix's Climate Fiction Initiative, he uses storytelling to champion climate justice and imagine green, clean, and just futures. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. My name is Tori Stevens, and I'm the creative manager for Imagine 2200, a climate fiction initiative out of Grist magazine. Grist is a nonprofit media organization, so the uh, program that I run is a little bit different than a, a news program. It is focused on climate solutions like Grist. It's focused on hope and justice as well, but it comes at this from a fictional angle. So what I deal with uh, in the contest that I manage, and it's mainly a contest, uh, we're rolling out some stories soon that will be not tied to the contest, but for the last two years since this program has started at Grist, it is a contest and it's very different than a newsroom. Um, I'm attached to the newsroom and I work with senior editors and we edit the stories, but the Imagine 2200 contest is uh, clearly, as I stated a few times, is is not a news thing. So yeah, that that's primarily the project that I run at Grist. I'm embedded on this team called Fix. We are focused on climate solutions mainly. The way we do that, and it's different from the Grist organization, is that Grist will focus on like the news cycle or something that's newsy, um, that's timely and you know relevant for right now. We will work on like evergreen things where we focus on a climate solution. And what we do is we do a deep dive on the person behind them. Like why are they passionate? for this particular climate solution and how did they how did they end up doing this you know we really go deep and you'll see some of our stories will be a lot longer length and they really have this kind of human interest part of it where you get to learn about the person so i'm a very much on a team that's centered um around storytelling yeah so i'll st- I'll, I'll leave it there for now that's a uh, if you want like other intros, like I live in Massachusetts, I have three kids and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just want to shout out Grist because um, Grist has been around for a long time. I remember, I mean, like 10 years ago, I remember really getting into it because I was in environmental studies at school and um, mm-hmm. I found this blog and it was, I guess, one of the few outlets I felt like that was, again, yeah, you know, really focusing on the environment and climate solutions even way back then. So, um, yeah, it's great to see this initiative coming out of of that project. And I love that your work at FIX is really focused on climate solutions again. Um, and the storytelling element, I think, is so important because I think in the face of climate change and just how completely overwhelming that can feel, I think it can cause a lot of inertia, you know, and, and apathy mm-hmm. kind of um, in, in the face of that. So I think this work is incredibly important. So I was wondering if you could speak about your inspiration for launching the Imagine 2200 initiative and, and what you hope to achieve with that project. Yeah, this is a really funny one. and <laughs> That's not really usually how you start. Like, where'd you find the inspiration? Yeah. Um, so the founder of Grist, Grist is 20 years old, 21 years old. Um, and the founder of Grist, had hired me and I was working on the fix team. He's the one who started this climate solutions lab, as we call it, embedded inside of Gris that would be focused on storytelling, humans behind those climate solutions. And he was speaking in my ear and saying like, I've been hearing this buzz around this term climate fiction. And this is two years ago and I had no clue. I came from the health policy world as a fundraiser. 
And I was brought on to help do some relationship building, not in the fundraising department, in the community building department. So uh, Chip said, let's let's talk about climate fiction in if you want to like, you know, help bring that to grist. And I was like blown away because I was like, for one, I don't know what climate fiction is. And two, I want to focus on things that can do things in three months, um, not like the super future out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we workshopped it with a whole bunch of the people that so Gris has this list that's kind of like a Forbes 50 list, but it's not focused on capitalism. <laughs> Thank, thankfully, it's yeah. focused on climate solutions and how we the people behind the climate solutions. So we have a list every year of 50 people that are you know working on a, a variety of things. You know, you might have like a kelp farmer, um, someone who's working on you know um, large scale industrial composting, um, and then it just it runs the gamut. And so we brought a small collective of those people together at a retreat. And um, we had some facilitators there. And one of the facilitators and I designed this game. It's a visioning quest that you go on that's called Imagine 2200. And essentially, uh, the, the goal of the game is that you get paired up with four people inside of Zoom. And you're trying to work out how do you get from now to 2200 and have the world be a clean, green, and just place. Mm. And you, every time you, you take a turn, you can envision something that happens on the timeline. It could be negative, it could be positive, it could be neutral, it could be political, it could be a climate solution. It was really fun to see everyone's visions at the end of the process. And after that, I was sold on, I would like to do climate fiction, but I wanna do it in a way that brings in um, intersectional characters, I want to bring in um, some of the things that the folks were dreaming of in the space. They talked about reparations. These folks talked about land back to Mm -hmm. um, indigenous folks and all these other things that would make a climate fiction, in my uh, opinion, initiative more than just about carbon being removed from the environment or or the air. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that to me, once we started to move into the justice part of it and you know, talking about characters that are very culturally authentic. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of where it starts. That's where the vision was. I It was at the beginning of the pandemic. And one of the things that really helped me when I was, I didn't really know where to start. And I was, had this charge of bringing this thing to fruition that I, you know, I'm not like someone from the literary space. And so I did a lot of reading to uh, understand, you know, where climate fiction is at the present moment and or was at that time. And I also started reading like Afrofuturism, Latinx futurism, and indigenous futurisms, uh, these literary movements that, and some of them even go beyond the page, like Afrofuturism, I would call more than just a literary movement. It moves into music and poetry, and there's like aesthetics around it. So I did a deep dive into all that stuff, reading a lot. It was the summer, it was pandemic. and then I worked with my uh, uh, partner in crime and also Chip Geller, uh, the founder of Grist, to craft this really cool contest that included all those things um, so that it wasn't just focused on carbon. It was focused on characters that can resonate with uh, folks that are marginalized or mm-hmm. folks that are on the front line, um, you know, like these frontline communities. Like, for instance, you have Louisiana, which has the um, Cancer Alley, which is an awful name, but it's true to what's going on in Louisiana with the plastic plants and the oil refineries. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted just a contest that could resonate um, and lift up 
some of the folks I didn't see represented in the climate fiction genre at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I just feel like it's it's so important. And I love that your project went so far beyond just, you know, sequestering carbon um, and this kind of technocratic fix, because we know that capitalism, white supremacy, colonialism, I mean, these are the real uh, root causes of our environmental problems and the root causes of climate change. And, you know, we're not going to fix the problem just with, you know, technocratic solutions that continue to um, marginalize the communities that are actually on the front lines of the fight. So just absolutely love that. And uh, again, I love that it kind of started with this visioning quest kind of um, game that you you thought up because uh, I actually credit one of the judges for Imagine 2020, Adrienne Marie Brown, for inspiring my passion in all things visionary Mm. fiction. And uh, her book, Emergent Strategy, really inspired uh, myself and my co-host. And um, what we really loved about that was this focus on really, really, um, you know, reclaiming and redeveloping radical creativity. Because, again, you know, these systems, capitalism, white supremacy, et cetera, um, they really rob us of the ability to imagine a future outside of these systems, right? And Mm -hmm. she talks a lot about how we're basically trapped in the imagination of these these systems, right? Like these people who have imagined this kind of horrid, oppressive future, we're trapped in this imagination, but it's so important for us to reclaim the ability to imagine something different. And if we don't do that, then we don't have something that we're actively, you know, collectively trying to walk towards. Right. We, know, we know what we want to tear down, but we don't know where are we walking to and, and you know, how do we get there? So yeah, <laughs> just to say, you know, love all of that. Um, so yeah, having said that, I'm wondering how you, well, you, I guess you just kind of uh, explained how you first uh, became interested in visionary fiction, but you know, what aspects of this genre really appeal most to you? Yeah, I would say like the speculative um, fiction part, I remember Adrian writing something, there's a book that they produced that really inspired, that I read during the, um, when I was kind of like in my hermit phase of trying to figure out what Imagine 2200 could be. <laughs> was and it, uh, it uh, Octavia's Brood? Yes, yes it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember somewhere Adrian wrote like, something like whenever we envision a world without war, without prisons and capitalism, or, and she just kept naming all these things that are like some of the things that you were naming, you know, white supremacy and um, how the imagination can even be colonized. She said, that's speculative fiction. And I, I was really, you know, it took me a while to kind of be like, oh, like this imagine thing that you were just talking about. And then the title of it was Imagine. But then I started to think deeply about the imagination and this idea that your imagination could be colonized, mm. like the thoughts and dreams that you have. Like, what is it to decolonize the imagination? And mm-hmm. so we started thinking about that as a as a foundation for the project. What if we just like, because I don't even totally know. I mean, I know what it means to some degree, because I know when you're decolonizing things, like we would like to not have an extractive environment that extracts people's like life soul, I would say, <laughs> and then extracts like also um, people's labor, you know, this whole extractive kind of thing with uh, settler, uh, colonialism. So I was thinking about that as like a, if you decolonize that and, you know, one of the things that folks, Adrian Marie Brown and others were talking about and still do talk about was a, like when you have abundance of things, how do you get um, an abundance of things for your people, for folks that are marginalized, for folks on the front line? Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to 
create a space um, for people to be able to imagine that and dream that. Um, just put out a call that is really justice focused, put out a call that calls people to uh, decolonize the imagination, decolonize storytelling. And so what you've seen is you've seen some really cool stories show up that haven't shown up in the climate fiction space. Mm-hmm. We had a Wiccan, it, it's a solar punk story. And I, I suggest if there's show notes to this, um, you could put in uh, the term solar punk. So in maybe I can even offer up some resources like Solar Punk Magazine mm-hmm. and World Weaver Press that have these imagine, imagine 2200 is a climate fiction initiative, but it borrows, and when I say borrows, it borrows like and grabs inspiration from Afrofuturists and solar punk communities. Both the Afrofuturist community and the solar punk community is beyond just literary um, movements. They are, um, you know, they have an aesthetic, they have an artistic movement, they have, um, I would say that the one place that Afrofuturist got solar punks beat is that uh, solar punk, as I know it, doesn't have like music tied to it mm. as of yet, but it is a very um, important literary genre. And we have been calling out to that community, partnering with folks. There's been readers. Um, we have reviewers who review the stories when we, we got 1,100 stories in the first year. And so mm. we have three reviewers. And um, actually in the first year, two of those, two of them were um, from the solar punk community. So, this idea of like decolonizing the imagination, we really want to see what happens when you push out that kind of call to action. And the stories we've been getting, like I mentioned the um, Wiccan one, and now I'll finish that story. Uh, the We got a story that was submitted by someone who's Wiccan and they incorporated some of their beliefs and culture into the story around how you, uh, it, it was very much like a healing justice story because it's a climate, fiction story, but it also deals with something that women deal with, which is um, either a miscarriage or an abortion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hadn't, I, I've not read every climate fiction story out there. I've read a decent amount and talked a lot about them, but I've never heard, you know, this is something that most women, most women or a lot of women will, will go through in their life. But the characters somebody was saying like, well, well, that's never happened in any of the climate fiction stories. And I want those kind of moments in our stories where someone can feel that this is climate fiction, but this is climate fiction that has characters that are living moments that I'm living through and I can relate to. Looking at our family, a dozen or so of my relatives around the fire, my chest tightens. I wanted to be grown up by now not to need so much support navigating life. I'm eating slower than everyone else. My head hurts, and my stomach definitely hasn't been cooperative lately. My jaw slackens and sobs tumble out of me. Everyone stops their chattering to witness me, and I wish they wouldn't. I want to be held, and I want to be alone at the same time. How is that possible? How is any of this possible? How had I been so reckless? Jidawarda throws eucalyptus in the fire and joins Grandma Sylvia under their blanket. The fragrant smoke means something to them in their secret language, invented during decades of shared ritual. I know that some of their language is my inheritance, a special thing for us family here to witness and make our own meanings from. 
The incense reminds me of the first spells I was ever taught to cast, and I let myself be enveloped by it. At first, the blood comes easy, like a regular period. But now, it is hot and thick, and tearing out of me like I've never known before. My pants are unbuttoned and stuffed full of rags. My shirt is at the foot of my bed, and my favorite wool sweater tangled up with my bedding. My insides are messy right now. It feels right that my outsides should be too. And so uh, Adrian Marie Brown and the visionary work that they've done to kind of, and others, I would say, um, in the clique of folks that she's, uh, or they, I should say, I think they go by they, so I apologize if I'm misgendering. They have been really talking about healing justice, uh, decolonizing a variety of things. And so them and others, we've been trying to incorporate into the call and act, call to action. And it was really sweet when Adrian said, I would love to do this. This is right up my alley. Um, it wasn't like a back and forth. We sent the you know project scope to them and they uh, quickly said yes to us. And we were really excited because the inspiration that Adrian and some of their books have provided um, were, were key mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. And I agree on the the importance of decolonizing the imagination because, yeah, it, I think it's just really difficult to um, to parse when you're living under these oppressive systems, you know, how much you've actually internalized because we've all internalized, um, you know, toxic and oppressive ideas from all of the, the different systems that we're living under. And if you don't really do that work to try to decolonize the imagination, then the solutions that you end up coming up with in many ways will just kind of subtly replicate the systems or won't be a, a serious challenge to them. And then, you know, therefore won't be getting at the root problem. Right. So mm -hmm. while I think some people might think of that as, you know, oh, that sounds kind of like trivial work, you know, talking about imagination, I, I, I completely disagree. Like, how are we going to really mm -hmm. um, come up with solutions that are kind of outside of these boxes if we're, we're still so, you know, trapped underneath them in, in our own minds. So yeah, I think that's really, really, uh, really crucial. So uh, my, a friend of mine, Silver Spook, who is an indigenous indie game developer and streamer. Uh, he, yes. Uh, so <laughs> he, and yeah, uh, I guess his new game coming out um, is going to be more in kind of the, the solar punk kind of genre. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he often talks about, you know, the obsession that we have in Western settler capitalist society with stories that are about dystopia and Armageddon and the end of the world. And he sees this as a real symptom of, um, you know, a taker consumerist kind of ideology that's rooted in white supremacy that is largely disconnected from the land and from traditions of reciprocity. And he says that this really creates an overall inability to imagine a future where we don't destroy everything to feed our greed and our egos. So I, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on, um, I guess, you know, whether you agree, you know, that we tend to see more kinds of dystopian stories sensationalized in Western media in particular, and why that might be. Um, and then on the, on the flip side, you know, how important it is to hear these alternative stories from historically marginalized peoples in particular. Yeah, this is a great question. And this is something that I've been trying to uncover and talk about publicly for the last about year and a half. The, you know, I mentioned that Imagine 2200 is focused on hopeful climate 
solution-based stories. And but the part that we we re, we don't reject, but we're not looking for in our uh, initiative is dystopian stories. We're right. not looking for imaginations to focus on that. We're changing the focus. And I think that you know I often ask this of public crowds when I'm speaking, which has been more of a recent thing. Um, as we uh, kind of do more public things, I ask folks, name or think of the last five shows that you've binge watched. And mm -hmm. if you're listening to this, you can do this like at home right now. Think about them, think about their narratives, think about their plots and whether or not they have something that is focused on hope and hope in a, in a verb sense, hope that has action behind it, not just like this feeling. And then also, how many of those um, how many of those series were kind of grim, dark, or dystopian? And you know, and then the last thing I ask folks is, okay, so hold that. And then how many of those stories focus on the climate, the biggest story or one of the bigger stories that this planet and humanity is going through, or I would say the biggest story. Um, and you know, the answer is, uh, you know, very low. Like many people don't say that, the, you know, a few shows came to mind, you know, they don't have any. And the, I don't know if you know of this organization called the Good Energy. No. Um, there's an organization that has been working to push Hollywood to incorporate screenplays that, or stories that are focused on the climate. And they've done also some research. So they do, they're an ad advocacy organization mm -hmm. to get, Netflix and Hollywood and Screenwriters Guild and all the different people that make movies and TV and stories of that nature happen um, to incorporate more plots that include climate in, in the plot. Uh, mm -hmm. And it would be even better if they did that from a hopeful climate solutions point of view. And then they also do uh, research. So they did some research and they put in keywords that had to do with global warming, uh, climate change, climate crisis, they had a whole grouping of like 15 or so key keywords. Uh, and then they check screenplays and they used like, a, you know, supercomputer or something that can kind of like uh, comb through all these terms in screens um, that have been uh, greenlit and that are out there in the world. And what they found was only one to 2% of the storylines have something that has to do with climate. And when they did, they often led from the um, disaster kind of, you know, mm -hmm. point of view, not like, you know, climate solutions, sustainability, um, green architecture, and, um, you know, a whole bunch of other climate solutions that could have been embedded in the story. And so I'm not totally sure. I mean, I, I'm not a person who doesn't believe that dystopian stories aren't helpful. I think they are helpful in that you want a like if you're having a fire at your house, you want the alarm to, to ring, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think dystopian stories do that and that's important. So I don't wanna like say that they're not important, but I think we're addicted to them in an unhealthy way. There's too many of them or like there's no balance. And I don't even, mm -hmm. I'm not even a person that needs to be, have everything be balanced. Like they're just, there's not even close to balance. There's 2% of the stories. Are, <laughs> they didn't do a study on um, how dystopian stories are. So I don't wanna misrepresent that. But what I want to say is like, at least if you just look at climate solutions or climate being like talked about, um, that's at 2%. And then just from my own like anecdotal research and like asking people many times and from the TV I watch, um, you know, there's there's not much uh, hope on a grand scale or a global level or a critique of capitalism 
um, that, you know, focuses on, you know, a clean, green and just future that we could all get to. I, I don't know why that wouldn't be an attractive TV show. Like, I think <laughs> that you could embed some of the other um, plot dynamics that people like, like a mystery or a crime drama. But you have climate, maybe the person stole some climate solution for this other, like, you know, like, I, that doesn't break us out of like, you know, um, some other kind of tropes and things that happen in Hollywood that we wouldn't want, but it would be progress to some degree. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I totally answered the question because I'm still mm -hmm. wrangling with the idea of why America and even I would say, I don't know, I'll stick to America because I don't watch films from, you know, a ton of other places. So. But yeah, I don't know why uh, dystopian cells. I I guess there's one other thing I would say is, um, and excuse me for my sniffling, I'm getting over a cold, but <laughs> you know, horror movies, like I'm pretty sure that there's more horror movies being uh, created these days than um, before. Uh, in uh, th that's kind of interesting too, because I would say that's like our need for this like blood and grim dark reality is something that interests me. I really want to try to understand the why uh, and explore that publicly. It's not something that I have answers for though right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point about just thinking about the things that you've watched recently. And yeah, when I think about any um, films or anything that I've seen that related to the climate, it was vast majority just complete disaster armageddon like dystopia kind of uh, a program and i think you're i think you're right that it's good to have those kinds of things as as like warning signs i think the big problem is that people tend to and especially in the west i think um where people are really kind of inundated with the ideology of capitalism like they tend to see those things and then just treat them as this is an inevitability, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, capitalism, patriarchy, et cetera, this is just human nature. And so it's kind of like, we're fascinated by these stories because it's like some sick kind of, um, I don't know, you know, looking into the future and being like, oh, this is what's going to happen. And there's nothing we can do about it. Kind of a, kind of a feel. Whereas, you know, Silverspeak talks about how like in Afrofuturism, indigenous futurism, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, people are coming from a totally different perspective, right? So they're coming from the colonized mindset and seeing like, no, actually this is our time. Like this is our time to finally um, decolonize. This is our time to finally, you know, we're pushing for land back. We're, we're making changes like the, the capitalist empire is proven to, to not be serving us. And so this is kind of our time to, to shine. And so just coming from that perspective, there's so much more of a focus on like hope and, um, and change and rebuilding and things like that. Whereas from like the settler capitalist perspective, it's all kind of dystopia and then kind of framing it as this inevitability, which I think just serves capital again, because it makes people feel um, this inertia and this kind of ap mm. apathy in the face of this, what feels like something that's just too big to handle, right? Yeah, I, I see that for sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like it's something that we recognize in, I think you articulated it very well and I have a, a good beat on it. I recognize there's a problem and I'm trying to understand the the problem, but also just create a space for people to address it from their own point of view mm -hmm. and and just build out what it what it instead just like I get that that's happening I get that dystopia is happening I get that capitalism's imprint on Hollywood's happening and that's why we have like the sort of stories we have and it's probably even why like we've 
come to see heroes as superheroes as opposed to like, mm. you know, like people doing things to change the world. It's like mm -hmm. this alternative world of justice, like that doesn't matter because the evil people are like, mm. you know, alien witches or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we kind of see that stuff. You know, we, I, I do try to talk about it. I, I don't have a total um, beat on it. I'm probably going to go back mm. and listen to what you said. I really liked it. Um, but this offering a space for people to dream in a different way is really interesting because many of the writers, even writers who didn't make the, you know, with the contest, we only produce 12 stories a year, which is like at this point is starting to become, it, it, it's a challenge for us because we love mm -hmm. these 12 stories and they're really, because we're pulling from so many, they're really rich and they're really dynamic. The characters are well-developed. They have that cultural authenticity. Um, you know, Maori stories to, um, you know, Jamaican stories or uh, Jamaican Patois in them. And mm -hmm. so we're loving that. But there's like a lot of really great story stories, stories, <laughs> <laughs> stories uh, left on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. So we, I would say out of the 1,100 stories in the first year, we, you know, we review them and we have the really great professionals um, that read a lot of stories that are editors in their own right, manage uh, anthologies and different uh, literary spaces. And, you know, they were ranking stories that didn't make the cut, you know, is a 92, a 95. Wow. And, you know, that was deep up into like the 120s. So mm -hmm. there's 120 stories out there that aren't seeing the light of day. And I don't want to contribute to that problem. So we're trying to figure out a way to publish stories outside of just the contest. Mm -hmm. However, we're not known as a literary space. So it's not easy to kind of just be like, hey, we're here, come view our, like no one knows that we have um, these stories unless we advertise them. Mm -hmm. And we do a really well job of advertising them for the contest because there's a whole hullabaloo around, hey, we're looking for stories. We're connected with the Adrian Marie Browns of the world, the Kiase Lemons, and different people that kind of like help us push this out. Mm -hmm. But but then if we were to push out just some of the other stories, it would be a little bit different. So it is a challenge, but it's something that I'm like, definitely we on the Imagine team are working on because we really want more of those stories. And I guess I did the thing where I was telling a story and then I started another one. I'll finish this other one, which is that I get all these um, emails from people and they're like, yo, I'm so grateful for you to have this like initiative. I've been writing a certain way my whole life. Mm -hmm. And this challenged me to write differently. Mm -hmm. This made me consider frontline communities more when I write about climate. Now that I'm getting into that a little bit more, I'm going to position it so that I'm not, you know, focusing on this like, you know, scientist tech wizard that's like come up with this new doohickey or whatever, <laughs> um, but uh, make it more culturally authentic and, you know, have characters that have, you know, deep layers. They're not just um, what I call, I don't, I'm, what I always look for in the stories I, or what I don't want to see is Lego people. Mm. And what I mean is that the character themselves is interesting in like their skill set and what they can do. But if you pop their head off and you changed it with another character, you'd never know if that character was Brazilian or black mm. or white or, you know, there's no like um, there's character there, but there's no cultural part of the character in the story. And we really want culturally rich characters um, because that was something I didn't see 
as much, um, and this is like two or three years ago, in the uh, climate fiction space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, it would be amazing if there would be subway to, you know, let those other stories see the light of day as well. Cause I think there's just such a hunger for these stories. And, um, I was saying to you just off air, I've been reading them and they're fantastic. I recommend everyone, everyone reads them. There's also, um, audio recordings of them if people want to listen to it, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know if there's some way to get those other stories together and, and get them out. Cause I think that more and more people are just really, really hungry for these stories. Cause as you said, we don't see that them often, uh, if at all, um, and especially not ones that have the rich cultural element to it. Um, yeah. Wait, before you transition, can I? Yeah. Throw in yeah. Something? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you want to? I want to? I just want to really bring up and drive home this idea of like stories that connect with folks that don't really see themselves in the maybe in the climate movement or climate crisis. Like they just aren't finding stories that represent them. And in the first year, I, I did talk about that we had like a Wiccan character and the person who um, submitted that story is also of that tradition. And some people would even call that story a lunar punk story, which is an mm. even smaller genre, but it has like these elements like where it's nighttime more and the moon is involved. And so I and, and maybe even some spells and witchy things. Mm. Um, but the story I want to also highlight from the first year, too, is called Broken from the Colony. And it's a really amazing story because it does, it's it focused on a trans femme character whose dad is not as accepting in society in Bermuda or Barbados, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the country, is is, is just not as, as excited and accepting um, as the father figure is in the um, story. And without giving it all away, but the the character hopes that the even the water has hormones and that they can live in a world where uh, there's like these other trans femme um, folks living in the water and you know things are washed away even though the world is washed away um, you know they live on in, in this accepting community. She can't afford to drown herself in similes. She must remember the wind. The wind cutting through her shirt Sharp enough to remember where her nipples were. Ah, not polyps. Nipples. The ones she grew on purpose. The ones that were hers even before the changes. The changes in her body and the changes in her world. She could no longer tell them apart. The wind picking through her hair like Casuarina. The Atlantic sighing with her. Staring out over that hill without a name. Everything could be her. And she could be. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, just like that whole idea that there's stories out there that could be a home for folks that don't feel at home in other uh, spaces. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. Just wanted, yeah, I just I wanted to add that, sorry. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Those two stories really stood out to me as well. And yeah, they they were really, um, really powerful and really powerfully written, just beautiful, beautiful writing. So I wanted to ask about the, the title of your initiative, which is Imagine 2200, Climate Fiction for Future Ancestors. So I'm wondering, what does it mean to you to be a future ancestor? Like what rights and responsibilities mm -hmm. would that entail? Um, and how do the stories in the series really speak to that concept of future ancestors? Yeah, and this one is like, I'm so grateful that we landed on this title because it really sums up everything. Like it really is, yeah, it just fits so well for what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, you have the futurist um, piece that is fit there, but the ancestor piece is huge around, you know, the indigenous folks. Um, and we noticed when we put this together um, and it wasn't, it was by accident, it wasn't on purpose. Um, so I don't know if many folks know this, but indigenous folks, um, and there's different like styles of this, but the, the commonly known one is that you're looking out and trying to, like you showing up in this world right now, presently, you're doing things that hopefully reverberate um, and have an impact eight generations from now. And so you're not just thinking about how you show up for yourself and your community here, but you're also thinking about your future ancestors. So um, we were thinking about that concept, but we didn't, I think ours is a, you know, in 2020, it was 180 years, which is when 2,200 would be. So it's about eight generations, not exactly, but it's far out. Um, and the whole idea is that we, want to show up for our non-human kin. We want to show up for humans, which uh, for a long time in the environmental space had been kind of like, you know, it wasn't about frontline communities, it was more about like save the polar bears and the whales mm -hmm. and, you know, conservation. But, you know, humans are who we're, we're not, they're not the only people, but it's a huge part of that equation. And so the balance between, you know, showing up for the earth, showing up for our non-human kin and showing up for our fellow um, you know, humans is, you know, something that uh, we're looking at when we're talking about being a future ancestor. And it's also for yourself, because we, you know, I think that's like one part that like people don't get. It's like, you don't have to sacrifice. I don't even, it's not a sacrifice if you can frame it as such. I think there's so many benefits to living in a world that's clean, green, and just, mm -hmm. that it really needs to be built out for us to see what that world could be. And that's why I'm grateful for us to be looking so far in the future. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I've also noticed is that, and I noticed this with visioning, I wasn't really into visioning and my whole team knows this, like when we were like, we're gonna put on a visioning um, retreat so that we could try to get to the, um, you know, generate some interesting conversation of what this climate fiction initiative could be. I just didn't understand how powerful visioning could be, but you know, taking yourself out, and that's what looking at 2200 and writing about in the future does. It allows you to not be tied to the present and you can just dream freely of mm -hmm. the type of world you, you think may exist, could exist or want to exist, your choice. And yeah, that, that part is so powerful. And I, I saw it at work in the retreat and I, I, it doesn't even have to work in a literary space. I could see policy people doing this because the benefit of visioning is it takes you out of your every day and you can kind of dream big mm -hmm. and just sky blue dream, you know, where it's just like, just go for it. Like, you know, if you wanted the best organization you could have, let's, let's dream of that and have this session to do that. Um, if you want to program or, pro you know, uh, a new program at your organization, you do have to kind of create that and you have to get into some sort of creative space. And I think visioning does that. And so climate fiction for future ancestors allows visioning to take place in a literary space. And that's where I come back to this um, piece that Adrian said, which is that, so speculative fiction is kind of seen as this like literary genre that is not it's like loose and not con contained. And it's sometimes relegated as like, oh, that's what like folks are doing. That's like, doesn't fit a genre. Sometimes it's like, you know, negative in that, you know, some people are looking at, oh, that's like the, for marginalized folk, like, 
there's all these like terms that are wrapped around speculative fiction that I, I, I think should go away. And what Adrian said around it, like, you know, when you're dreaming of alternative realities that don't include like the white gaze or white settler colonialism or white supremacy and, you know, some of the things that are ending up in the other genres, you're, 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 you're diving into speculative fiction. And I would say that uh, climate fiction for future ancestors, Imagine 2200, is definitely a speculative fiction contest because it is looking for to deconstruct and uh, take down or not even deal with because like we've moved beyond that sometimes. And that's when people go kind of full utopian with it. Mm-hmm. And, and just to get it out there, it's just in case anyone's listening and they want to write for this uh, initiative, we 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 are okay with utopian stories, but we're also okay with conflict. We mm-hmm. want to know how we get through to the other side, and it's okay if there's a little bit of conflict in these stories. And then again, on that other side, it's also okay if you just want to focus on, hey, we already did all those things. We, um, you know, upended the system of capitalism, and we're on this new vibe. And the oil companies have been dealt with and their power has been taken away. Like that'd be, mm-hmm. you know, so, so it's like wherever you want to like plug in. And I think like that future ancestors piece, people showing up for, again, our non-human kin, the earth and for humans alike, I think sets the stage for really beautiful and interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of, you know, really visioning that far into the future. Mm. Um, and yeah, this idea of actually thinking about your ancestors, I, I find that so important. Um, and I think that that's, you know, kind of one of, I mean, I guess one of the reasons why we're in this predicament is that, um, you know, especially in our kind of consumerist kind of late capitalist society, everything is really, we, everyone thinks in the short term. So it's all mm-hmm. about, about short term gain. And then I think also, I don't know. Yeah. Because people, you know, we only live so long. I think there can be this kind of feeling like, oh, well, yeah, I know that this big horrible thing is probably on the horizon, but I'll probably be fine. Right. You know, just kind mm-hmm. of thinking like, just kind of hedging your bets. Well, maybe, maybe I'll be able to weather this. Um, and then just not thinking at all about, well, what I mean, and maybe you don't have kids, um, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure some of your friends do, or or you probably know some children um, in your family, extended family, or a friend group. So you know, what about them? What about their children, right? And yeah, I also appreciate that in a lot of the stories, you know, as you said, you're open to utopian ones, but also ones that are <laughs> not so utopian. Um, and yeah, I, I appreciated that in a lot of these stories, I guess there were still some elements of, I wouldn't say dystopia, but they're, you know, they weren't all happy stories, right? Like, um, right. you know, there was a lot of conflict or there there were um, things that happened that were clearly happening due to the remnants of, or, or people dealing with the fallout of, all these centuries of, you know, uh, white supremacy, mm-hmm. colonialism, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of sad things that happen in the story. So you might be reading it and think, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't feel, you know, um, uh, like a solar punk kind of utopian vision. But um, in every story, even if there is conflict, even if there is really sad, difficult things that the characters deal with, there is always some element of um, hope uh, and resiliency and, you know, coming together as a community, um, things like that, that I think are really important. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to highlight that 
it doesn't need to be uh, all happy tales for it to be a really good climate fiction story, I think. Um, there just has to be that realness and just something that people can really take from that and feel like, you know, I can, I can see, I can see moving forward in this way and, uh, you know, coming together to deal with whatever we're, we're dealing with. Right. I don't know if I explained that very well, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you touched on a few things that I really do appreciate about the stories, like people coming together um, as a community, resiliency, um, you know, rich characters, one thing that I have seen show up in these stories that I'm really happy about is care work. There's mm -hmm. a really beautiful story from this year's collection. So the second year, it's called In Now the Shade. And I'm going to give a preview, but I won't spoil it. But essentially, the uh, there's a scientist working on a climate solution. And their grandmother is um, has... Uh, dementia. And every time they talk to them, it's kind of the same thing, but they're also short with them and not listening because, you know, they feel like they're just going to get the same thing. Um, but then they show up in a different way and a, a different result happens. And it's a beautiful result. And yes, it does some, have some element of sadness to the story, but there's also like the critique around the idea that you need to just because someone's like really at, at people at their you know end of care or end of life moments um we we you, capitalism doesn't allow for us to take the time but we need to take the time for those people because they need they need and deserve that those moments and also you you could regret it as a person if you don't have those last moments with that beautiful someone in your life that means a lot to you. So mm -hmm. yeah, I love when the stories are about climate fiction, but they also tackle something else too in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I wanted to talk a bit about the political significance of all of this. Um, mm. So think, thinking about, you know, how visionary climate fiction uh, can contribute to actual solutions to the climate crisis and how fiction can support or enhance our political activism. Yeah, well, I would say that w one of the um, goals of our organization is to better educate people about the fact that there are climate solutions, like a lot of people just think of that there's more than just solar wind and um, like hydropower and mm -hmm. some of the things that people see as, I don't know, just the ones that are, you know, in society is seen as like the most prevalent, I guess you should, should say. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to show there's all sorts of climate solutions and some that have nothing to do with like the tech side of things at all about caring for your aging grandmother. And why is that important about, um, you know, people who have abortions, like, you know, and why like that should show up in storytelling. And there's just so many ways to connect with people. And that's like the main thing that we're trying to do. And I think is important. So there's a ton of people and I've even heard it in my like Zoom discussions and in book um, reading groups or whatever, that they don't get their orientation from the news. They, they tune out and I've, I'm not a news junkie, but I'm a person that like is up on the news. Um, and, you know, uh, understands what's happening from week to week. But there's a ton of people that I've encountered that were like, oh, I just don't listen. Like one woman said, I, I was speaking at a library and she said, I haven't checked the news and watched the news in 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, for one, that shows like an incredible level of privilege in my mind. But like put that aside for a moment. There's just people who aren't getting their orientation from the news. And that's primarily what Gris does is deliver climate um, news, you know, about your state, about the 
federal situation, um, you know, sometimes what's going on at COP. So the whole idea of presenting a fiction uh, contest is to reach the people who just don't, um, aren't reached by the news. We want to be talking to people like we want the climate uh, conversation to start with grist. That's like one of our goals. Like if you're, you know, talking about the climate, hopefully you got your orientation around that um, in the climate solutions as well. And we've always been focused on hope as a, a way to shift. We want to, there's like solution journalism out there. Uh, I don't know if folks know if that's a thing, but it is a thing. And part of our seeing our uh, role in the solution side of journalism is to talk about that there is hope and that there are climate solutions and there's a variety of them. And we need all of them to kind of, it's solar alone won't do it. Wind alone won't do it. It's going to be like tackling in, in a power power struggle with the folks that are running the um, you know fossil fuels from the oil to gas um, and others. And then there's this element of you know, people power and democracy. So we see like so many solutions here at the table. And the thing about Imagine, it, it, it can kind of talk about things that we don't see in the news. Like it's not often that Gris gets a chance to talk about democracy mm-hmm. um, because of just like some of the stories they're covering. Sometimes we do, you know, when like they're, the, the public has been shut out of a conversation or a, a vote went a certain way. Um, but yeah, like the main goal of the project and the main thing that we're trying to do is just reach people in a different way. So there's some people, like I mentioned before, that just aren't you know interested in news. And there's other people like myself. I, I read the news and I watch the news sometimes, um, but I mostly read. And then I, I also get orientation and things from fiction because I love the taking myself out of the actual space that I live in. I want to live a, another person's life in a way um, mm-hmm. or see what another person's life is. So there's a piece of it, too, that I would say that if you're not on the front lines, it could show you how someone's life is who's living on the front lines in a, in a richer way than I say like a news, a five minute news segment could could do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also because often the news isn't very hopeful or, <laughs> you know, right. or, oriented towards solutions and things like that. And so I know Adrian Marie Brown talks about how, you know, shame and guilt and just uh, despair are actually not very good motivators for people to actually get really engaged in community and, and political organizing and work, um, that actually we should be trying to make our movements as joyful as possible so that they just feel irresistible to people. Like people look at them and they're like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Like that, that sounds good. That sounds exciting. Um, and so I think that this kind of fiction is, again, just so important for that that piece of motivation to get people to feel like, yeah, I, I can do something and I want to get out there with people. And there is, um, you know, joy and resiliency and all the rest to be found in community and, and organizing and all the rest. And then, as you said as well, the just the focus on things that don't often get the focus like land back and things like that, mm-hmm. that are crucial for climate justice and, and addressing climate change, but that, you know, you're not going to get a lot of that, I guess, in the mainstream. So yeah, I, I think that some people might think, oh, well, it's just fiction, right? So how, <laughs> how politically relevant is that? But I, I think it couldn't be, couldn't be more relevant. Um, especially as I said, you know, we need these kinds of visioning uh, projects and, and to reclaim a radical creativity to really come up with the solutions that we can walk towards. So yeah, just, oh, sorry, did you? 
I was just going to leave you with one thing. I just remembered that. So we were talking about dystopian stories. And yeah. I think it's also one thing that has been brought to my attention from a Nigerian writer who wrote this essay in uh, Uncanny Magazine, which is a science fiction and fantasy magazine. Sometimes they have essays. And his name is, and I'm going to butcher this, and I'm very sorry. Um, his name is Oghen Nichivau Donald Apiki. And I can send you the link so that you can link to this in the show notes if you want. But mm -hmm. he talks about dystopian. The title of the thing is Too Dystopian for Whom? A Continental Nigerian Writer's Perspective. And so the one thing I want to add is a little bit nuance of when we talk about, oh, there's too many dystopian stories. Like some people are living a dystopian life right now. Mm. Um, I think about the children that were locked down in their homes um, for COVID and couldn't go to school, which I, I'm not like one of the people who are against like some of those things happening. I think it was necessary. But mm -hmm. I, I think about them being in a, like a, an awful situation and in the home life and not being able to escape that and then having to do school from just like a computer without their friends and stuff. I think about frontline communities that are, you know, there are uh, multiple people in their family that have cancer because of the um, oil refineries that is leaching into their water. I think about the folks in Lagos who are um, tapping gasoline pipelines because they don't have enough fuel um, and sometimes explosions happening and destroying, you know, small um, living spaces. I think about just all the people that are, and this is what his, um, uh, essay was about. It was like, there are people right now living dystopian lives. Mm -hmm. And yet um, in in the West, people are watching it on TV. So maybe yeah. there is something to that. In, in, and I'm definitely going to look back at what you said, because I really liked it when you were talking about um, the, the, the role between capitalism and dystopia. But I, I also wonder if like, because the West has such comfortable lives, and not everyone, of course, but a good, like there's large middle-class segment of people in, in, in folks who just are watching TV and there's some escape, but I just wonder if you're living a dystopian life, do you want to escape to also watch some dystopian mm, like products? Yeah. Um, mm. So I don't know, there's something to that. I definitely am going to reread this essay because I remember it being like really, and it's quite new. He put this out probably a month and a half ago, but mm. I'll send you the link for sure so that you can link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to read that because I think you're right. I think that there really is something to this idea that, you know, in the West, uh, especially where people are comfortable, I think there's often this kind of anxiety around, you know, th there's this racism uh, that pervades that kind of treats people in other parts of the world as disposable, right? Like, so different parts of the world, it's like, oh, it's fine if that's a sacrifice zone. You know, it's fine if there's climate refugees in those places. Um, and, you know, people can just, again, you know, sit in the comfort of their home and watch those kinds of things and um, be really fascinated by it. But I, yeah, I think there's this kind of anxiety um, among kind of like white supremacist culture of, you know, the things that this society or, or, you know, the colonial empires have imposed on other people, this anxiety around that coming back and, and actually happening to, you know, comfortable white people. And mm -hmm. that I think might be part of, yeah, this, this kind of fascination of, you know, people obsessed with that, because I know that even something like The Handmaid's Tale, 
has been, you know, critiqued for just like its kind of inherent whiteness because, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, black women are like, yeah, well, <laughs> this has been happening to BIPOC women mm -hmm. for, for ages. And now people are just so fascinated with the story because, oh my God, it's, it, it's something happening to white women. Right. So it's finally like when, when this stuff that has been caused by colonialism and, and capitalism, et cetera, which has so far benefited the West, but of course will not benefit fit the West forever. Eventually it's going to come, come back to, you know, bite everyone, <laughs> including the, you know, the richest, most comfortable people. Um, now there's this kind of anxiety uh, among certain classes of people around, you know, the stuff that's been happening to BIPOC people forever happening to comfortable white people. So I, th I think there's definitely something to that. Yeah, for sure. And I don't, I know we're late in the podcast, so jump one, one thing, <laughs> I'll, two things I'll address because I, I, I do don't mind critiquing the project itself. Um, uh, Jacobin magazine covered Imagine 2200 and the writer there, um, I think her name is Liza, uh, but don't quote me on that, even though I just said it. <laughs> um, they were underwhelmed from the capitalist kind of like critique in the stories. Like there's not much of an economic critique. I think that to some degree that is a function of like short stories. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not trying to like protect or guard against the contest. I would love for stories to show up that critique capitalism, um, that show uh, alternative economies and ways of relating on an economic level that mm -hmm. help us get out of the climate crisis. I think there have been a few. There's one from this year called Seven Sisters, which is um, focused on a cooperative tea farm. Uh, and so, yeah, but there, 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 that is one. I just wanted to mention that. And then when you started to mention things around colonialism and uh, you know white supremacy, how how it's like showing up in um, in in how like folks are. Well, just like around this whole idea that dystopian can happen for one person and not another, I think that like fascism was happening for black folks and, ha and has been like stop and frisk, like many mm -hmm. fascist kind of like things. So, so I think there's also like uh, something similar between that, like mm -hmm. it's labeled fascism once it starts to come for like, you know, things that white people hold dear, not yes. that, the, you know, so there's something to be said around that too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, just the complete genocide of indigenous people. I mean, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. they've, they've been living under a fascist state, which is just called the liberal, you know, the liberal party of Canada is, is, <laughs> can be right. viewed as, as fascist to, um, you know, some people right now. So yeah, I think that's a great point. So just to end off, I wondered, um, you know, obviously the authors in, in the Imagine Contest that you've, you've highlighted are incredible. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any other authors or works in particular that you want to shout out that have moved you and and that you might recommend to listeners? I would definitely recommend Adrian Marie Brown's uh, book. Uh, well, it's an anthology, so they didn't write the book, but they edited it and um, it's called Octavia's Broad. We talked mm -hmm. about it earlier. Um, I think it's a wonderful way to shift what you're reading so that um, science fiction for a long time has been white male focused and dominated and this is not focused on so, uh, climate solutions i mean very much in sci-fi you will find a lot of colonial artifacts i guess i'll call it uh mm -hmm. and tropes and ways of telling stories so that's a um a book that does the opposite and it's really cool to see the different vignettes mm -hmm. then another one i would um 
recommend, and this is a, a, a white man, is um, Kim Stanley Robinson's book. Yeah. Yeah, Ministry for the Future is mm -hmm. a really great book and has some concepts in there that I didn't expect. Like, so you want an alternative to capitalism? How about a Gaia coin? Um, one that, you know, pays you for uh, the more sustainable, you get paid for being sustainable, basically. So those are those are two books that I would definitely recommend. Um, and then, you know, a, any of the books that have been put out um, by World Weaver Press, mm -hmm. um, World Weaver Press is a very small press, and I think it might even be going away soon. Mm -hmm. um, it's an independent um, publisher. But they have a solar punk series called the multi-species cities cool solar, solar punk urban futures and it's just really cool um if you want something and you were like what what is this thing solar punk that this uh, person tori was talking about um you can get a real taste for it um in that uh mm -hmm. anthology mm -hmm. um and then one more and this will be the final one and it's also with world weaver press is um, it's called Recognize Fascism, a science fiction and fantasy anthology that tackles fascism and uh, the characters are um, you know, battling against that and living lives that make sure that if, it, if that sort of mentality ends up in your kind of space, how to recognize it and how to vanquish it. Uh, the last thing since, and this isn't a recommend, this is just me adding on because I have time. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that we often got stories that were about depopulation. Hmm. And the, I know that the writers, they I think they think they're in the kind of left uh, tradition and that they're showing up in a social justice way. Mm -hmm. But depopulation in like any means to doing it, in my mind, is like a fascist road. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can limit growth in like the economy before we think about, you know, even I would never even think to depopulate because I just think it leads to violence and, mm -hmm. uh, um, in a, or, or yeah, like I'll just leave it there. I just think it's one of those things that we didn't get to talk about because of, but once I started right. thinking about recognizing fascism, I was like, this is some of the, we do get some fascist stories or like have some underpinnings, like the story would be great. And I'll be like, oh, this part about like controlling people's births and stuff. Is very, <laughs> yeah. It's just like too, too much. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, absolutely. It's extremely Malthusian. And um, right. it is part of a lot of like uh, eco fascist kind of thought that they're right. not sh shy about talking about. So that's a great point. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for those recommendations. I haven't uh, read some of them, so I'm definitely going to check them out. Nice. Um, and, and just thank you again for coming on the show. This was such a great conversation. I know the listeners will love it. So just to leave off, I'm um, wondering, uh, we'll, we'll definitely include links in the show notes. But if you want to just shout out where people can find uh, either you or, or Imagine 2200. Yeah, thanks for that. And I really appreciated being on your show. The place to find the work is at uh, fix.org. Um, so sometimes it's grist slash fix.org. You can also just find it at grist.org and then search Imagine 2200. Also, Google is your friend, Imagine 2200. And I'm pretty sure the first thing that will show up is the collection from this year or last year. And if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Tori Stevens. It's just my name, T-O-R-Y. Stevens just with a P-H. And I'm usually at Twitter. Don't know how long that will last, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how long that lasts for sure. 
Um, well, awesome. So thank, thank you so much again. This was really fantastic. Thank you. The sunny week before our final hui, the elders had telecoms every day, even international calls, requesting up-to-date census stats. L said they stopped when it got cloudy only to conserve batteries. So much thought over a baby. But our Komatua are more cautious about modeling responsible citizenship since we donated the plaster troughs. It was the plaster troughs that saved the world from us humans, them, alongside their carbon-fixing counterparts. Amma always said our motivation to change the way we lived was stimulated by seeing the tiniest of life forms fight to undo our damage, that it gave us the hope we needed to work harder. <laughs> 